This is our fourth week in the story of Abram. And if you're like me, you haven't been to any other of the evening services where we've been looking at Abram. Um, so first, before Scott comes up to read, I'm going to do a quick recap of what has happened so far in the story. So Abram was a wealthy man who is descended from Noah. Abram and his wife, Sarai, who, for the sake of ease, I'm going to call Sarah for the rest of this. Abram and Sarah lived in a land called Haran. Abram lived a fairly normal life, that is, until he is called by God to move from his father's house to a land that God would show him. And there, God would make him into a great nation. This is a strange promise as Abraham is 75 with a 65-year-old wife and they have no children. Yet Abram believes God and leaves his hometown with his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot. And then in the next few chapters we see Abram lie to the king of Egypt. Him and his nephew Lot go their separate ways. Lot gets captured and Abram leads a small army to rescue him. Abram talks with God and is concerned that he still has no children. God then makes a covenant, which is an agreement between God and Abram. In it, God promises to bless Abram with offspring that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So it's safe to say that so far Abram is having a busy retirement. And this is where we pick up our story tonight. So Abram has been in the land God promised him for 10 years, and still he has no children. So I'm going to invite Scott up to bring us our reading. So the reading can be found on page 16 in Genesis chapter 16. So page 16, Genesis 16. And after Scott brings the reading to us, we will stand again and sing. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, took, Sarai his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, 
I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hands will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So we are in chapter 16 of Genesis tonight, and if you could keep that open um, so you can read along and verify the things that I am saying, we're going to look at three points to help us navigate through the passage. So our first point that we're going to look at is Abram doubted God's promises. So point one, Abram doubted God's promises. In Genesis 16, God made a covenant or an agreement with Abram that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. What was Abram's initial response to this? It says, Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So Abram's response was that he believed God and he had faith in his promises. God also made the promise that Abram would possess the land of Canaan. Where we pick up the story in chapter 16, Abram is living in the land of Canaan and has done for the last 10 years, but still he has no children. We see that Abram's wife, Sarah, is ready to throw in the towel. She thinks her childbearing days are over, which is understandable as she is 75. So she thinks up a solution Abram can have a child through her servant, Hagar. Sarah tells her idea to her husband, saying, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So what do we expect faithful Abram to respond? Surely he says, No, Sarah, God has promised that I would have offspring. He didn't say anything about me needing a new wife to give me a son, so I'm going to trust in God and not take Hagar as my wife. That's not exactly how it goes. In verse 2 it says, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. The story goes on to tell us that Sarah takes Hagar, her servant, and gives her to Abram as a wife. And while it uses the phrase wife, Hagar wouldn't have been seen as Sarah's equal. One commentator says how slave women were considered both property and legal extensions of their mistress. This practice is also done later in Genesis by Rachel, who also can't conceive. I think the words that Rachel says to her husband in Genesis 30 help us understand this practice a little bit better. She says, here's my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf. That's the key phrase. 
that even I may have children through her. And Bella conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. So that's another key phrase. So applying this example to Sarah, Sarah is essentially getting her servant Hagar to give birth on her behalf. Hagar would essentially be acting as a surrogate for her barren mistress. So any children that Hagar bore through Abram was as close as Sarah could get to having a child herself. So the story then moves on. Abram takes Hagar to be his wife. He sleeps with her and later she conceives. At this point, we may be thinking, happy days. Sarah's fixed his work. Abram now has a child and God can build a great nation from this point. But things don't work out that smoothly. When she realizes she is pregnant, Hagar begins to despise Sarah, or as the ESV says, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Hagar begins to see Sarah as worthless. She now sees Sarah as below her, as she is unable to conceive. Sarah then responds by blaming Abram in verse 5, saying, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Sarah goes on to say, May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarah is jealous, she's angry, she's been humbled, and she hates it. So what's her response? Find someone else to blame. Instead of realizing that all the blame should fall on her head, she goes to Abram and blames him. And what is the response of Abram? Is he angry? Does he rebuke Sarah? No, Abram thinks to himself, that's not a fight I want to get into. Happy wife, happy life, perhaps. So he shifts the blame to Hagar and says to Sarah, she's your servant, do to her as you please. The result is that angry, jealous, embarrassed Sarah makes Hagar's life miserable. So miserable that she flees. We're going to pause here and think what is going on at this point. In short, the whole thing is gone pretty pear-shaped. Sarah's big solution to give Hagar to Abram has resulted in damaged relationships between Abram, Sarah, and Hagar. And now Hagar has run off with Abram's child in her womb. The whole thing is a mess. And I think all of this mess comes from one simple truth. Abram doubted God's promises. The story up to this point has similarities to the fall. Sarah convinces herself that, God, that what God has promised isn't true. And like Eve, she doubts that God is watching her and knows what is best for her. And then, like Eve, she convinces her husband to sin. Then, just like Adam, Abram neglects his duty of leading his wife and he follows her bad example. The result of the fall that was the relationship between man and God is left destroyed in the wake of sin. In the wake of Abram and Sarah's sin, 
they are left with damaged relationships with each other and with Hagar. And I think it's safe to say that this does no good for their relationship with God. There are many different things we can take away from this first point, but I think the key takeaway for us is that we need to trust the promises of God. And how do we do that? Well, we patiently obey him. I'll come back to this a bit more at the end of point three. So that brings our first point to close. Abram doubted God's promises. So what is our second point? God sees and hears his people. God sees and hears his people. At the end of verse six, we saw Hagar running away from Sarah as she was being mistreated by her. Sarah really must have been treating Hagar poorly. If pregnant Hagar was willing to give up guaranteed water, shelter, and food just to escape. We then have the angel Lord who finds Hagar relatively close by at a well and asks, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar says how she is fleeing her mistress, Sarah. From the direction she is heading, the best guess is that she is heading homewards towards Egypt. The angel then responds to Hagar saying, return to your mistress and submit to her. I think at this point we can think perhaps this instruction is a bit harsh. After all, Hagar is just escaping her awful working conditions. But the angel didn't finish there. He brought her good news also. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel then goes on to tell Hagar that she is pregnant with a son and that he should be called Ishmael. And why should he be called Ishmael? Because the Lord has listened to her affliction. And then he goes on to say about the kind of life that Ishmael would live. This is a lot for Hagar to take in. Firstly, she'll be blessed with a son. Obviously, a son would be able to carry on her family line. The angel also promises that her offspring will be multiplied into an uncountable multitude. On top of this, the angel says how the boy should be called Ishmael, which means God hears. How encouraging is this for Hagar? The lowly slave who is afflicted and poorly treated by her mistress has had her prayers and cries heard by none other than God himself. We then have this interesting interaction with Hagar and when she names the Lord who spoke with her, saying, you are a God of seeing. She goes on to say, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar is the first person in the Bible to name God. And how does she describe him? A God of seeing. Her description is then validated in many other points in the Bible, such as Psalm 33:18, where it says, 
But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. We have a God who sees everything we go through, the highs and the lows. And I think it's because of this that we can trust God by patiently obeying him. Even when it seems like God does not hear our prayers, he does. When it feels like no one would notice if we did the wrong thing that everybody else is doing, God sees. It is because God sees us and hears our prayers that we can trust him and patiently obey him. This is what gives Hagar the strength to return to Abram and Sarah. She knows that God is watching over her. As Christians, we can patiently endure and obey, even through suffering and hardship, because God is watching. In 1 Peter 18 and 19, it says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So it is a godly thing for Christians to suffer under a nasty boss, or like many of our brothers and sisters around the world, it is godly to endure hardships from an oppressive government. Obviously, if you're being treated badly by someone at work, it can be a great and healthy thing to move job. But if we do choose to stay, how can we submit rather than getting angry and complaining? The answer is we look to Jesus' example and we trust the God who sees and hears us. Going on from that other verse in First Peter, speaking of Jesus, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to the God who judges justly. We, just like Hagar, are able to endure unjust suffering if we look to the example of Christ and entrust ourselves to the God who sees, hears, and judges justly. Before we go on to point three, I'm going to dip my toe into perhaps the most widely debated part of tonight's passage. Early in the passage, the person who Hagar is talking with is called the angel of the Lord. On the first read through, we perhaps think that this is just an ordinary angel, similar to the angels who appeared to the shepherds or to Mary Magdalene at Jesus' tomb. However, I don't think that is the case. As verse 13 says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. It is clear from the text that Hagar doesn't say to the angel, the person who sent you is the God who sees me. But instead she says to the angel, you are the God who sees me. She then goes on to say, I have now seen the one 
who sees me. There's no consensus on who the angel of the Lord is. However, I think there's good evidence to suggest it is God himself. A theophany is a fancy term used to describe a pre-incarnate appearance of God in physical form. So when God appears to his people before Jesus came to earth as a child, the term we use is a theophany. It literally means the appearance of a deity. So Hagar naming this angel as a God who sees her is one of the many pieces of evidence that this is likely an appearance of God. There are many other pieces of evidence. Uh, The word Lord is uh, in all capitals. We see it saying the angel of the Lord. In other cases, it says an angel of the Lord. And then we have Hagar directly addressing um, this angel. But in the interest of time, I'm not going to delve into all the evidence. But in our next point, we're going to see how amazing it is that God himself came to visit Hagar. So this concludes our second point, that God sees and hears his people. So our third and final point is that God is kind and faithful to his promises. God is kind and faithful to his promises. This passage is highlighted so clearly that both Abram and Sarah's doubts that God, both of them doubted that God could give them a child of their own. The fact they doubted God's promises led them to trust in their own solution, which led to sin, conflict, and it led to Hagar running off. What does God do at this point? If it were me, I would be leaving them to it. I would think, you have made a right mess of this, Abram. You haven't trusted God's promises. Yes, you have tried to do a good thing, but you've tried to do it in completely the wrong way, in a sinful way. But thankfully, God is a lot more merciful and kind than I am. What does God do? He himself intervenes. He visits Hagar and is kind to her. He blesses her with a son. From this son, Hagar would have innumerable offspring. God is so kind as he comes himself and visits the lowly servant girl, Hagar, and tells her that he has heard her affliction and has blessed her. God is also kind to Abram as he instructs Hagar to return to him. In the months after returning, she bears Abram a son, and Abram calls him Ishmael. At the age of 86, Abram becomes a father for the first time. God, in his mercy and his kindness, stepped down into Abram's mess and fixed it. And even more importantly, he doesn't disregard his previous promises. While Ishmael was Abram's son, God chose not to use this son, born of Abram's doubt and self-reliance, to create this nation for Abraham. But in the coming weeks, we'll see how God acts miraculously by his own power 
to give Abram another son, and it is through him that God builds Abram into a great nation. So even though Abram doubted God and wasn't faithful, God was faithful. Last week, James talked about God's covenant with Abram, where a heifer, a goat, and a lamb were sliced in two. And normally both people making a covenant would walk through the middle of the halved animals. The point being that if one of the people in the promise doesn't keep their end of the deal, then they can expect to end up like these animals. But we read that only a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed through. These symbols of God's presence passed through the middle of these dissected animals. God was making a one-sided covenant, meaning that even if Abram was unfaithful and doubted God, God would be faithful and would make him into a great nation. It does not sound familiar for us, an unfaithful, sinful people who God does not abandon, but in his mercy and kindness steps down into our mess and fixes it. Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't see our broken relationship with God and think, good luck saving yourselves. He knows that like Abram, we cannot fix our sin on our own. We need a perfect sacrifice. We need a man who has perfectly obeyed God throughout his whole life to sacrifice himself for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have a restored relationship with God. We can read this story in Genesis 16 with a huge smile on our faces, knowing that God doesn't abandon his promises to us when we go our own way and are unfaithful. We can be extremely encouraged that in Romans 4, it says how Abram was made right with God, not through his works, but through his faith. When we feel like our faith is weak and feeble, turn to Genesis 16. Remember Abram's faith and how it wobbled. Remember how he tried to have a son in his own strength. And then remember that in spite of this, God is kind, God is faithful. And remember that Abram was made right with God through this small, seemingly weak faith. It is crucial that we remember that Christians are saved through a perfect, faithful saviour and not a perfect, faithful faith. Christians are saved through a perfect, faithful saviour, and not a perfect, faithful faith. So what are our key takeaways from tonight? I don't know about you, but I love Match of the Day. It summarises 15 hours of football into 30 minutes of highlights. And that's what I'm going to do now. Um, Summarise 25 minutes of me talking. So for the people who've been Asleep is the perfect time to wake up. You get to hear everything that I've said in just one minute. 
and hopefully this will be a reminder for us as well as allowing us to apply these truths to our lives. So point one was Abram doubted God's promises. What was the result? It led him to sin. Therefore, we need to trust God. And how do we do this? Well, we patiently obey him and we remind ourselves of his promises through reading the Bible daily and praying for help to obey him. And then we moved on to point two, which is God sees and hears his people. The result of this is that Hagar was able to return to her mistress, Sarah. Therefore, we can also trust and obey God, even if it means suffering injustice like Jesus did. How do we do this? Well, we trust that God sees us and hears our prayers and will one day bring his fair judgment upon those who wrong us. And then we moved on to point three. God is kind and faithful to his promises. As a result, even though Abraham was unfaithful, God came down into his mess, fixed it, and then kept his promises to him and made him into a great nation. Similarly, Jesus comes into our messy, sin-filled world and dies to save us from sin And he restores our relationship with God. Therefore, we can put our hope in our unwavering God and not in our wavering faith. We can put our hope in our unwavering God and not our wavering faith. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you are God who has made promises to your people. Lord, help us to trust the promises you've made to us, even when they're tough to believe and the devil tempts us to doubt them. Lord, I pray that we would remind ourselves daily of your promises to us by reading your words in the Bible. Father, we are so thankful that you are God who sees our struggles and hears our prayers. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who have been moved from their homes, who have lost their loved ones, who no longer have jobs. Father, we pray that you would hear them in their affliction and you would meet their daily needs. Lord, we pray that there would be peace once again in Ukraine and that through this conflict you would bring many Ukrainians to faith in Christ. Father, forgive us for the times that we doubt your promises and instead we do what we think is best and we sin against you by our actions, our words, and even our thoughts, Father. Jesus, thank you that you stepped down into our sin-filled world and fixed the problem of sin and you've restored our relationship with God. Help us now to put our hope in your unwavering faithfulness instead of our often wavering faith. Lord, may these truths encourage our church family this week as we are sent out to the different places you have put us. May we show Christ in all we do this week. Amen.